This is a special presentation of the AD History Podcast, an audio mini-documentary where we explore the question from the Allied perspective, did the U.S. and Allies have to use the atomic bombs against Japan in the Second World War? We hope you enjoy. With all the discussion, study, and debate around the history of nuclear weapons and the two atomic bombs that were dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki at the end of the Second World War, nobody ever seems to ask how else those bombs might have been used. You're right, Paul. In reality, there's a secret extended internal discussion for the best way to use them. It begs the question, did the US and allies ever seriously consider not using the atomic bombs during the war? It's a really provocative question, and one definitely worth exploring. But before we do, I think it's important to make a few things clear. One, this isn't a discussion or debate about what primarily triggered Japanese surrender at the end of the Second World War. Was it the atomic bombs? Was it the Soviet invasion of Manchukuo slash Manchuria? That's not on the table. And two, we aren't also discussing the morality of having used the atomic bombs in the first place either. That's a discussion for a completely other time. What we are doing is looking at Allied decisions making relative to how and why they chose to use them, based on the information available at the time, the strategic situation, and the political consideration at play. So, let's answer this question. Would the US have ever chosen to withhold use of the atomic bombs against Japan? To start, this deserves a straight-out answer. Basically, any scenario short of the Japanese unexpectedly accepting the Potsdam Declaration, the joint Allied reaffirmation in July 1945 calling for the unconditional surrender of all Axis powers, the answer is unequivocally no. As we look closer at the political and strategic ramifications of the first atomic bombs becoming available in July 1945, there is exactly a near zero chance the bombs would not be used if they were still at war with the Axis powers. There were actually many reasons why the US and President Truman authorized the use of these bombs. We need to look at the incredible amount of resources that went into their development, and the aspirations that may have proved a strategically significant weapon. We also cannot forget to figure for the potential political fallout at home, when it eventually would be discovered that their use was withheld, prior to an invasion of the Japanese home islands of Kyushu and Honshu that could have hastened or made unnecessary the war's bloody final act with a major invasion, a military operation that would have been massive in scope and definitely incur monumental casualties on both sides. Plus the various conventional alternatives that were thought viable to force Japanese surrender. These all factored heavily into the decision for their use at the time. Absolutely, no question. But before we go into the counterfactual history rabbit hole, because that's what we're doing, let's explore why the Allies developed the atomic bombs in the first place. Why did the Allies construct the atomic bombs? We knew the world would not be the same. Few people laughed. Few people cried. Most people were silent. 
line from the Hindu scripture, the Bhagavad Gita. Vishnu is trying to persuade the prince that he should do his duty and to impress him takes on his multi-armed form and says, now I am become death, the destroyer of worlds. I suppose we all thought that one way or another. So, Paul, I'm sure many of the people watching right now know that the first atomic bombs that were developed and produced were done through the famous Manhattan Project. It was a joint American, British and Canadian venture that sought to create these weapons, out of fear Nazi Germany would outpace the Allies and create one first. They saw it as a race to get the upper hand from their enemy, creating history's first weapon of mass destruction before they did. Well, but what the Western Allies didn't know, and couldn't know, was that Nazi Germany was nowhere realistically close to creating their own atomic bomb. Germany, by 1942, focused their efforts primarily into other so-called Wunderwaffe, or vengeance weapons. Wunderwaffe projects notably included the development of the infamous V-1 flying bomb, its successor the V-2 rocket, as well as the jet engine aircraft ME-262, to name a few. Yeah, and the Third Reich's research for an atomic bomb had many, many complications. Some included their decentralized research efforts, plus a combination of government, departmental, and project infighting. In reality, Paul, this was common fare for many projects during the Third Reich War. There's no question about it. It is absolutely a mess. That was the fundamental truth of the matter, though. Almost regardless of what part of the German war machine you look at, there was an ongoing competition for scarce material resources. The Wunderwaffe projects were no exception in many regards. Plus, Paul, this was confounded by numerous major figures in the Reich, scheming to have these projects fall within their personal sphere of power, looking to receive sole credit for their success. Whew, that is a mouthful and absolutely the case. Yeah. This was made worse when you realize that the strictly scientific minds involved in Nazi Germany's research and development were also apparently in conflict as well. For example, Werner Heisenberg was Nazi Germany's foremost theoretical physicist a pioneer in quantum mechanics, the creator of the famed Heisenberg Uncertainty Principle, and recipient of the 1932 Nobel Prize in Physics. Heisenberg was also critically one of the major scientific point men in Nazi Germany's construction of an atomic bomb, privy to many of the details relating to Nazi Germany's progress towards building their first atomic bomb. When Heisenberg first learned of the atomic bomb's use against Japan, he was in abject disbelief. Yeah, yeah. Heisenberg probably wouldn't be able to imagine how the Allies managed to construct the damn thing. Based on the countless research hurdles he faced in his quest to create one for himself. In fact, Paul, Heisenberg initially thought the news was Allied propaganda, or even perhaps a uniquely destructive conventional bomb. Though, needless to say, Heisenberg was quickly disabused. That's, you have a talent for understatement, my friend. His reaction was telling since he was among the few in Germany who had the informed insights to arrive at such a conclusion. But Heisenberg wasn't alone. Apparently, there were other high-ranking members of Germany's government who had expressed similar sentiments about the prospects for its construction years earlier. Even Hitler himself, Paul, thought the atomic bomb wasn't feasible, in, especially in use of a time of war. 
Holding that belief, he actually directed resources to be reallocated to more potentially useful Wunderwaffe projects that could actually be used in the war. Them's the ropes in a despotic regime where the whims of the all-powerful leader dictates priorities. Wise or unwise, but to the Allies' unknowing benefit, it gave them a tremendous advantage in the high stakes of creating the first atomic weapon. <laughs> the Allies' original intent was to use their atomic bomb on Nazi Germany. However, Nazi Germany's unconditional surrender in May 1945 occurred two months prior to the first successful test detonation in New Mexico. To think if it had become available before then how history would have changed. And so, when getting to the heart of the Allies' unswerving decision to eventually use the atomic bombs, theirs was more than a mere wartime opportunity that dictated its eventual use. The financial dynamics of the Manhattan Project played a definitive role in its own right. Follow the money, the cost of developing the atomic bombs. The Manhattan Project has an incredibly high price tag. It cost the USA $2 billion. And while that might not seem like too much for today's standards, in the past, that was quite a bit of money. By oh, yeah. today's standard, $2 billion is $28 billion as of 2020. The project was the second largest wartime expenditure after the $3 billion price tag of the B-29 contract. The Manhattan Project's cost alone made the atomic bomb's usage a near fait accompli if the Allies still found themselves at war when they first became available. But when considering the governmental realities of undertaking a program as ambitious and expensive as the Manhattan Project, it accompanies a great political pressure to see the final product prove useful towards Allied victory, which was most certainly the case here. Mm -hmm. And foregoing their use would have led to later accusations of profligate spending. Questions about why the same financial appropriation was not used towards other possibly better efforts and could have been more useful in the war, as well as outright questioning the Truman administration's judgment. Financial appropriation aside, the atomic bomb had additional political sensitivities as well. The political implications of not using the atomic bombs, needlessly squandering allied lives. There can be no peace in the world until the military power of Japan is destroyed. With the same completeness as was the power of the European dictators. To do that, we are now engaged in a process of deploying millions of our armed forces against Japan in a mass movement of troops and supplies and weapons over 14,000 miles. A military and naval feat unequaled in all history. Powers engaged in total war against an implacable foe do not withhold usage of a weapon that might be a quantum leap in weapons technology especially a weapon that might also have revolutionary strategic implications. That cannot be emphasized enough in a battle to the death. Too right, Paul. And would any wartime leader really want to face the uproar of their nation, especially in a Western democracy, answering for why their sons and daughters have died during a conventional invasion of Japan? That might have made otherwise unnecessary use of the atomic bomb. On a political basis, such a situation is odious at best. Can you imagine the Prime Minister's questions for that very <laughs> topic? 
I mean, that yeah. would have made primetime television, to say the least. Yeah, like, <laughs> it would have been interesting viewing. So, President Truman gave the final green light to bomb Hiroshima and Nagasaki, and nor would FDR have hesitated to do the same, might I add. He was, of course, the one who decided to initiate the project in the first place. When one takes a prospective view of the war during the summer of 1945, it's clear Allied war planners had much to consider, especially the numerous particulars of deploying the atomic bombs. The secret debate of how, when, and where to use the atomic bombs. A short time ago, an American airplane dropped one bomb on Hiroshima and destroyed its usefulness to the enemy. That bomb has more power than 20,000 tons of TNT. The Japanese began the war from the air at Pearl Harbor. They have been repaid many fold, and the end is not yet. With this bomb, we have now added a new and revolutionary increase in destruction to supplement the growing power of our armed forces. In their present form, these bombs are now in production, and even more powerful forms are in development. It is an atomic bomb. It is a harnessing of the basic power of the universe. The force from which the sun draws its power has been loosed against those who brought war to the Far East. The U.S. Interim Committee, founded in May 1945, was a small consultative body focusing on early U.S. nuclear doctrine and the use of atomic energy, though prior to the establishment of the policy of full civilian control of nuclear weapons and energy that exists to this day. And that is quite an influence and impact, to say the least, because that was a question that was entirely unanswered early on after its development. Who chose who got to use it? Was it civilian elected leaders such as the president, or was it military planners without further authorization? And that really set the precedent for what we do today, which of course is entirely at the direction of the commander-in-chief, a.k.a. the president of the United States. And the intercommittee members included a select few within the national security clearance, allowing them full knowledge of the highly secretive and sensitive Manhattan projects. Obviously, President Truman... Secretary of State James Burns, and Secretary of War Colonel Henry Stimson, to name but a few. And I also believe that George Marshall was in on it as well. That's a seriously small amount of people who knew what was going on there, Paul. But the committee's foremost priority was actually advising President Truman on how the atomic bombs might be used against Japan. And the internal deliberations of the interim committee, insofar as we know, never seriously floated the prospect of withholding use of their new weapons. It's true, and that was the reality of the war that they were fighting. Before discussing further how the atomic bombs might have been used, Allied war planners foremost needed to address another burning question. Was there any additional feasible conventional strategic alternatives to defeat Japan beyond using the atomic bombs or an outright invasion of the Japanese home islands? The blockade option, a lesser-known and problematic alternative to invasion and dropping the atomic bombs. Substantial portions of Japan's key industrial centers have been leveled to the ground in a series of record incendiary raids. What has already happened to Tokyo 
will happen to every Japanese city whose industries feed the Japanese war machine. If the Japanese insist on continuing resistance beyond the point of reason, their country will suffer the same destruction as Germany. Our blows will destroy their whole modern industrial plant and organization, which they have built up during the past century and which they are now devoting to a hopeless cause. We have no desire or intention to destroy or enslave the Japanese people, but only surrender can prevent the kind of ruin which they have seen come to Germany as a result of continued useless resistance. So, during the Second World War in the Pacific, the US conducted a highly effective naval blockade of the Japanese home islands. However, it seems to be all but forgotten in a popular historical memory. Though the Battle of the Atlantic and the German U-boat campaign interdicting Allied merchant shipping dominates most historic attention. And it's not all surprising that it does, but the most effective maritime interdiction campaign of the entire war was enacted by U.S. Navy submariners against the Empire of Japan. Aside from a conventional invasion of Honshu and Kyushu, marine interdiction of Japan was realistically the only other conventional alternative the Allied powers had for potentially coercing Japanese capitulation, thus ending the war. But, as you and I both know, that approach possessed clear and considerable drawbacks at the time. Yeah, quite right. And the nature of economic strangulation by naval blockade in the Pacific was a so-called known unknown, which sounds quite oxymoronic, I know. But it required an unknown period of time to potentially succeed. For all the wartime resources at the command of Allied forces in the Pacific during the summer of 1945, time was never among them. Time is very seldom a resource any army or country has when they're fighting a war, and this was no different. In fact, this was that yeah. to the extreme. Warfare dictates maintaining the initiative over the enemy, thus never providing one's enemy the benefit of additional time to rest, reorganize, regroup, and rethink what they're planning to do. Hence, the cost and possible time to undertake a successful blockade may have proven very, very high indeed, if it worked at all. Once again, these are the known unknowns, and those are some of the worst known unknowns, as strange as that very term may be. Yes, it is a rather odd term, but this is a very odd time in world history. As invariably the case in war, decisive action was required to achieve a Japanese surrender. The Allies, by waiting for a blockade to succeed, would provide Japan further time to enact greater defensive measures for resisting a conventional Allied invasion of Honshu and Kyushu, if it did become necessary, that is. But in doing so, the already tremendous cost of a conventional invasion would have certainly increased as well. Moreover, the so-called known known in this case was that the Japanese conception of resistance did not recognize privation in the least. Not at all. It didn't matter how much they suffered. It was irrelevant to many of them, and it was very much borne out in many, many cases in various points in the war. There was a genuine Allied fear that all Japanese people would continue to resist to the point of their own collective obliteration, and were unlikely to value the dwindling means of their basic sustenance in the process. That is incredible to consider, all told, especially from the Allied perspective at the time. It's absolutely incredible to hear just how dedicated the Japanese were to their cause, and 
by quite late into the war, Japan was taking active steps to psychologically and physically train their civilian population to do just that. With the highly problematic conventional alternatives understood, how else might the Allies have used the atomic bombs other than how they eventually did? Options for how the US could have used their atomic bombs differently. Truman made the decision on the basis of the military necessities, and I think uh, an impartial analysis, particularly from the Japanese themselves, uh, more evidence is coming out that they would have fought on fanatically. You know, they did fight on fanatically in some of the islands, even in spite of the surrender. So Patrick, during the top-level discussions on how to use the atomic bombs, the merits of a technical demonstration for Japanese benefit were actually debated. The technical demonstration would have been an unambiguous detonation at a safe but visible distance, making it clear the novel and devastating weapon the Allies possess, ultimately serving to encourage immediate surrender. But one of the problems is that they didn't think that would work. No, this technical demonstration concept was dismissed pretty quickly, and that was primarily due to the committee's belief that only the use of the bomb on a viable Japanese target would actually convey the reality of the destruction their new weapon could do. Absolutely. The target committee, which was of course the immediate predecessor to the aforementioned interim committee, was headed by none other than General Leslie Groves in early 1945. General Groves was the primary professional military head of the Manhattan Project. He worked with all of the really top-level brain boxes that made this weapon possible. That was their one objective. As the target committee name indicates, these discussions were considering the best possible locations as well as the best possible uses for dropping their new atomic bomb. And according to the target committee, they generated a number of options for the bomb's use. Uh, first option was use as a tactical weapon assisting the conventional invasion of the Japanese homelands. However, there's also the idea of use as a demonstration before primarily Japanese civilian observers. The aforementioned technical demonstration. There's also the idea as a use as a demonstration before a Japanese military target with primarily military observers. Use against a primarily military target. Use against a city of a military target, providing advance warning. And use against a city with a military target foregoing advanced warning. It's pretty clear what the final choice for the Allied war planners were, and the next challenge was deciding where to use the bombs. And as odd as it may seem, just given everything that was at play at the time, there really wasn't anything terribly surprising that the fact that they ultimately chose the last option, even though many very heavily debate whether Hiroshima and Nagasaki were truly the types of military targets they should have been targeting in the first place. List of target locations. So, aside from the eventual targets of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, the original draft of the target candidate cities included Kyoto as the foremost preferred target. And Kyoto was rejected for a number of very good reasons, it would turn out, but some of those reasons included its status as Japan's long famous historic cultural epicenter containing Emperor Hito's personal residence, of all things. And obviously, I'd rather a bomb. Obviously, you would all rather this never happened in the first place, but Kyoto is a beautiful city. I've had the honor of going there myself. Thank God the Americans didn't drop a bomb on it. So Kyoto was removed from the list, partially in thanks to Henry Stimson. It is said that Stimson held a personal fondness for Kyoto after honeymooning there with his wife many decades prior. 
Stimson sought to protect this cultural treasure, fully understanding that it would create outright resentment by the Japanese for generations if it were obliterated. And that I can fully understand. It's an incredible story, especially for a person that could appreciate that from first-hand experience and would know to weigh in on it, because the chances of revanchism go much higher should you target that. And Kyoto's bombing was also very likely have killed Emperor Hirohito. Hirohito as an emperor was thought by his subjects to be a living deity, the direct ancestor of the Shinto sun goddess Amaterasu. The allies, by using the atomic bomb on Kyoto, might have unnecessarily created a divine martyr of Hirohito, reinforcing the already implacable resistance of the Japanese people in the first place. They wanted to use this to positive effect. They did not want to use it to make resistance even more difficult. That would have very much been missing the point in their eyes, and quite logically so. Very right, Paul. And Hirohito was the lone figure who, through his divine status, could unilaterally command Japan's surrender. In total, all of these outcomes were well worth avoiding at all costs by nixing Kyoto from the list. Tokyo, for all its importance, wasn't actually considered, as shortly before it was almost completely destroyed following the campaign of Allied incendiary bombings. You can thank Curtis LeMay for that. Operation Meeting House in March of 1945 essentially obliterated Tokyo through its firebombings. And so when it comes to the decision to use the atomic bombs against Japan, it's also important to consider how Allied war planners viewed their Japanese enemy in July 1945 as a people in terms of their mindset. In addition to how that impression informed their decision making, how the Allies viewed Japan's resistance in summer 1945 is absolutely critical. In late July 1945, the US had just achieved victory over Iwo Jima and Okinawa at a bitterly high cost. Oh, yeah. These battles were among the most brutal of the war and clearly indicated that any conventional invasion of the Japanese home islands, designated Operation Downfall, might take millions of Allied and Japanese lives to complete. Nor was there any way to predict how long such a fight would last. The Japanese, they, they did not want to surrender. Okinawa and Iwo Jima were utterly savage battles, close-quarter engagements that demonstrated the zeal of Japanese resistance and the ferocity of the landing U.S. Marine Corps units. So for the U.S., it had made a deep impression on how much the Japanese were prepared to sacrifice, their utter rejection for the concept of surrender, and how that may manifest in defense of their home islands. This is definitely first and foremost in their minds at this point. Yeah, quite right. And during the war itself, the Allies held between 20,000 and 50,000 Japanese prisoners of war. Let's compare that to the estimate 140,000 Allied prisoners of war held in captivity by Japan. So long story short, surrender was a rare occurrence by Japanese forces if you hadn't picked up on that by now. By comparison, the UK and Britain each held roughly 400,000 European Axis POWs during the war. Japan was the unambiguous exception among all belligerents involved in the conflict. No doubt whatsoever. And unless otherwise instructed to surrender by Emperor Hirohito or some sort of properly ranking government officials, Allied leaders had legitimate reason to fear that every Japanese man, woman, and child may have fought to their extinction against any such invasion of mainland Japan. Within the context of the Greater War, the Japanese rejection of surrender was remarkably unique, 
entirely foreign to the Western sensibilities, to be sure, and in fact, almost otherworldly in the eyes of the American and British troops locked in combat against them. This made a very deep impression and just this incredible cultural disconnect that happened at these engagements. If you hear any interviews from Allied, and in many cases, American veterans who fought in those campaigns in the Pacific, they tell a great deal about the impression that made on them. It sounds so interesting, and it, it clearly does show Japan's unique identity in all this. And during the fighting in the European or North African theatres, surrender was far more commonplace and mostly accepted by all sides, despite the treatment of POWs varying significantly. Seldom was there such a constitutional elan to avoid being taken prisoner at the cost of one's own life. Even for the soldiers of the Red Army that sought to avoid surrender at all costs, their attitude was predicated on their expected treatment by the Germans in captivity and the understandable dread of later repatriations to the USSR should they survive their captivity. Never was it treated as a divine mandate, as it so clearly was for the Japanese. Well, I can definitely tell you this. The Red Army story is definitely one that I think at some point you and I should definitely discuss because it is very mm. unique. And it's one of those things where you can't go forward and you can't go backward. Stalin used to say it was a brave man who could be a coward in the Red Army. So there's something to take to the bank. But while the Allies understood the implacable nature of their Japanese resistance, accompanied with their aspirations for the potential of the new atomic bombs, they were not at all certain about the bomb's reliability, nor was anyone placing bets that the bomb's use might bring a swift end to the war despite their greatest hopes. So while they knew this was absolutely a landmark weapon and they held certain aspirations and hope personally, from the very pragmatic view of directing a world war against, at that case, two implacable enemies, they couldn't even be certain that when they dropped them, that it would work, nor would they have any idea to what extent it would. But clearly, as history bore out, we know how they work, but they didn't know it at the time. The atomic bomb was no golden ticket. We had three completed bombs. We had used one for a demonstration in New Mexico. We had two bombs left. And we had to be very, very careful on how we used those bombs. If one of them turned out to be a dud when we decided to use it, we would be in a situation where our demonstration wouldn't be worth anything. So, Patrick, there's a common popular trope that's become wound up in the history of the atomic bomb's usage is the ahistorical belief that it would invariably promote immediate Japanese capitulation. And it's often retrospectively assumed that the Allies thought that they were near victory in August 1945. And spoilers, they definitely didn't think that at all. No, Allied leaders in the summer of 1945 had no clear expectations that the atomic bomb would necessarily force an end to Japan's fight whatsoever. When peace transpired in August 1945, it genuinely caught the Allies by surprise. Nor could Allied war plans have proceeded from such an assumption, as it would have hindered preparations for what they thought was likely cause of action regardless, a conventional invasion of the Japanese home island. And I can completely understand why they weren't 100% sure that this would end uh, the war, because as we've seen already, like the, the Japanese were 
very, very unwilling to surrender. So it was totally in the wrong possibility that despite the fact two of their cities were destroyed, they might carry on fighting. Absolutely. And I think it took very special steps to make sure that that did not happen. So it's, it's really a very interesting case study here. And like you just said, Allied war planners were getting ready to fight into 46 and even 47 at that point with the aforementioned Operation Downfall. And it's critical to note that Japan did not outwardly flinch initially following the first atomic bomb's use on Hiroshima, which was very strange. It wasn't until the second atomic bomb was dropped on Nagasaki, accompanied by the Soviet invasion of Manchukuo, which we know today once again as Manchuria, that Hirohito broke the Imperial War Council's deadlocked over the decision to eventually surrender. Japanese surrender, when it eventually came forth, was a major, major shock to the Allies for several reasons. I'm sure you can understand why this is the case. It was unknown how much the atomic bombings might have impacted the thinking of Japanese war planners, or even Hirohito himself. Or that dropping the atomic bombs might lead to his uncharacteristic unilateral intervention to ending hostilities. In fact, we got into that into a special segment in a prior episode that we'll be sure to mark with a card on this because it's really quite interesting to see. But there was no, there was sound and reasonable doubt that the bombs would function at all. Like I said earlier, the Allies had only the bomb's first successful test detonation in July 1945 from which to proceed. And there's a very big difference between a test detonation in the New Mexico desert as compared to flying over an enemy target, deploying the weapon, and having it function as intended. So in this case, one could never reasonably place all their bets on a revolutionary technical advancement, especially after only a single successful test detonation. Nor were the Allies altogether ready for peace, like I said, because the Allies were planning for the war against Japan to last into 46 or 47 at the earliest. It didn't matter at all that Germany had capitulated in Europe. There was one very famous war diary by a Marine who said, the Nazi surrender in Europe might as well have happened on the moon because it changes nothing here. Was use of the atomic bombs inevitable? So, as a rule, we must always remember, nothing in history can be thought of as inevitable. Except for German counterattack, of course. <laughs> yes. Though, when one examines the numerous factors that led to the Allies first developing and then using atomic bombs, including the financial cost of doing so, its various intragovernmental as well as domestic political implications, and its potential strategic magnitude while fighting a global conflict, it's now impossible to imagine the Allies choosing otherwise. And it feels a little bit sad to come to that uh, conclusion, Paul, that this was an inevitability, though of course nothing was inevitable, because it was such a horrendous thing to do. But this was a time in history unlike any other when drastic decisions like this were unfortunately, unfortunately had to be made. It's very true, and we've seen many instances like this in the show so far. We'll see many more going forward, you can bet on that. What I will definitely say is this, however, while this is by no means a judgment on whether they should have been used, whether they shouldn't be used, or the morality of the situation, there was one positive outcome from this in the end, is that it created what we now today know as the nuclear taboo, where we understood the incredible destructive power of these weapons, especially as they quickly became more powerful and very much cemented in the mind of world leaders 
that this is the very last option and you simply do not want to go there, especially when you get to the point of mutually assured destruction. You're right, Paul. The use of atomic bombs is certainly mad. I had to get that pun in there. You always have a way of making your point with the greatest brevity. Be sure to follow and subscribe for upcoming AD History podcast episodes, available wherever podcasts are found.